Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Our topic today is the contract file and what happens if you don't take the time to properly document things in the file. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. To get more content and context from Skyway's team of former contracting officers, get a personal membership to the Skyway community. Visit skywaymember.com to learn more. All right, let's get started. Today we're talking about contract files, and contract files used to be a thing, a stack of paper in a file that goes into a filing cabinet. It's morphed a little now with electronic filing, but the concept of what goes into the file is the same. Do you, do you remember the Lectriever? It was that big machine that rotated the files because there was so many, so much paper. You actually had to rotate to be able. I to remember. Be I remember the thing, but I don't remember the name. Yeah, it's actually a company that in, they're probably out of business now. But yeah, the contract file used to be paper. Now it's electronic, but the concept is still the same. Is you, you can't file everything, but you have to file the right thing. So what's the expectation of record keeping? What's important versus what's interesting and you know, nice to know. And with email, it's really easy to pile up a bunch of stuff that's interesting, but not that important. And the more interesting but not important stuff you have, the harder it is to find the important stuff when it's time, unless you have a, a system. Fortunately, the FAR gives us a system. Woo-hoo. And the amount of time it takes to keep up with that system can be quite daunting. If you want to know why government contracting can take a long time, building these files is part of it. It's where the term file stuffer or file filler or file fodder, where it applies. This is stuff that has to be in the file, but nobody really knows why or nobody thinks it's important at the time. We're going to talk about why you can find out that it's going to be important later. Before we do that, let's stop and say thanks. I want to say thanks to Parrish Morris from Document Security Solutions. Paris is a veteran-owned small business out in California, and he's been singing our praises on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and even wrote us a testimonial. Parrish is a great example of someone we created the podcast to help, right. and, quite, and I created Skyway to help. Uh, so thanks for constantly sharing our content and supporting us so more people can find our content, because we just hit 300,000 listens. <laughs> 300,000 downloads. It's amazing. And people sharing the content is how that happens. So thanks for that. Thanks, Parrish. What are we talking about today? What needs to be documented in a contract files? And this is our FAR time moment. FAR 4.803 is called Contents of the Contract Files. Sounds exciting. <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> Riveting. There you go. We're going to camp out here in this, in this one little paragraph to cover the CO's contract file, the contract administrator's file, and there's even a paying office file. No kidding, Nick. They actually get their own list. And, and here's the bonus. 4.803 says, the, and I'm quoting here, the following, which it has a big list we're going to go through some of, the following are examples of the records normally contained, if applicable, in contract files. Hmm. So that's one of those things. It doesn't say shall, but it's kind of giving you a hint that these things normally are in there because there's a good reason why you might need to document this. It's like your shopping list for filing. Okay, so 4.803A has 42 sub-bullets of things 
that normally are contained, if applicable, in the contract file. And when I say 42 sub-bullets, each one of those has multiple words. It doesn't just say paper number one. For example, 4.803A1, and I'm not going to read that every time, but (laughs) one says purchase request, acquisition planning information, and other pre-solicitation documents, including availability of funds. So that's not just one piece of paper or one electronic file. That could be a lot of them. And it's amendments and acquisition planning information. That's a huge statement. Right. So this is, you know, one, this is just number one. And let me start with the important thing here. Each one of these bullets, there's a definitive reason why it makes sense to document this. Not, not all of them apply all the time, but as we read through them, this, these aren't just, they aren't file fodder. They're, oh, I can see why that goes in there. And as we're going through, we have the, the top six here, right? Are the ones we're going to go through. Think about if you don't know why it's in there, that means you lack context. Right. And there were a couple of them I thought, why would that be in there? And I had to go look it up. I'm like, oh, yeah, that now makes sense in that scenario. And another thing to say, before anybody decides to stop listening right now, we're not going to talk about all 42 of these <laughs> and make people drive their cars off the road when they fall asleep. <laughs> all right, I talked about number one. You get number two. So number two is justification and approvals, which we have a podcast episode about that, determination and findings, and associated documents, right? So what does that mean? Lots of stuff having to do with whether or not a decision was made around competition. That's, that's what I get from that. And that could be dozens of documents. But that needs to be in there. Why does that need to be in there? Because if you didn't compete this, the file needs to explain why. Right. The main justification and approval we talk about is that sole source justification. But there are other justification and approval documents that could be here. Like a determination and finding for whether or not it's a commercial item. That's one random thing that could be in there. You get number four. We skipped number three. It wasn't interesting enough. (laughs) Number four is synopsis of proposed acquisition as required by FAR Part 5 or a reference to the synopsis and the source solicited. So this is where you prove that I actually posted this so that the world could see that there was something to compete for. And and that's that's the market research zone. That's evidence that you stepped into the market research zone for a moment, a month, a year. It doesn't matter. But this is – we actually – Ask the market, can you do this? The next one is your small business set-aside decision, including the type and extent of market research conducted. So if you decided not to set it aside, you have to document why this is not a small business set-aside. If you decided to do a small business set-aside, which of course is another podcast, you need to show that documentation here so that later on people can go back and tell that you had a, a, a rational set of thoughts behind your decision. And then lucky number seven is the government estimate of contract price. And we all know that can be fuzzy, but the point is you had to, you have to prove, did we actually think about what this would cost? Well, where's the evidence going to be in the contract file? Number eight is where you put a copy of the solicitation and the amendments in a big, big competition. The solicitation itself could be a set of files. If there's tons of, of requirements, documents and technical documentation in the old paper days, this could be a filing cabinet or a wall of filing cabinets of its own. And even in the smaller ones, it can be a hundred pages because it's all of the elements that go into the actual solicitation that went out to the world. 
We just ran through six of the things that the FAR recommends that you consider putting in your file if applicable. I think you can tell why these are important. Documenting that you have the money available, that you had the money available before you went out and solicited proposals. Documenting that you justified your actions, whether or not it's sole source or not. Documentation around, did you follow the rules and post it for everyone to see? Or are you trying to sneak an acquisition by a a semi-sole source? (laughs) Documentation regarding whether or not small businesses get to compete for this without competing against large businesses. Documentation around the government's cost estimate, how much should this thing cost? And a copy of the actual solicitation to show that you followed all the rules. Those are easy to tell why they should be in a file. There are 36 other things listed that some of them are easy, some of them are not so easy to tell why it should be in, in the file. One of them is source selection documentation. If you did a source selection, you have to include all of the different offers, unsuccessful, the losers, proposals, all, all that stuff has to be in there. All of the reports that we've talked about in the uh, source selection episodes need to be in there as well. You can kind of tell why that would be important for historical purposes to to prove that you conducted a fair competition. And there are a few other key ones like the justification of the type of contract, the original of the signed contract and all the modifications and supporting modifications executed by the contracting office. In other words, the entire contract file, the life of the contract. Sometimes that gets bigger than the original files. If you're a, if you're on a large system acquisition, a modification, an engineering change proposal later could be another wall of files all by itself. They also recommend, number 39, is cross-references to pertinent documents that are filed elsewhere. Wow, I'm not sure I ever did that. <laughs> no, with hyperlinks, it's probably not that hard. And number 40 is any additional documents on which action was taken or that reflect actions by the contracting office pertinent to the contract. Wow. That sounds like the CYA file. Exactly. And and then this is a really fun one that we found. Number 41, a current chronological list identifying the awarding and successor contracting officers with inclusive dates of responsibility. In other words, who do we blame when something happened four years ago? Who was actually the active contracting officer? So you're supposed to have like a, a roster of who was the contracting officer during this problem and this problem. So, yeah. It's a, I, I blame, don't know. Is blame. that a new one or just something I don't ever remember doing? I'm going to go with uh, it's option A. It, it, it must be new because <laughs> I never did that. <laughs> no, I don't think we had had a roster. I mean, I know I know we dug back and said, wait, who did that mod? And you can see whose signature's on it. I don't know. I don't know. Is it a blame file or is it really to go back and maybe give someone credit for who did this great thing back in time? You're so optimistic. <laughs> In all seriousness, it's probably there for the reason of if there's a contract admin issue from pricing to allowable cost to a change that was made to the contract, you want to know who was the contracting officer, you can go get more documentation from. But yeah, the way that I read it is that (laughs) it's a blame file. That's great. And there are a dozen of them that we didn't even read. More than a dozen. And then there are 22 items that the contract administration file list, and then there are four items on the contract paying office list. So there's a whole lot of stuff we didn't even cover in here, but you see each one of them, there's a story behind it. It, it, Like you often say, everything in the – every rule comes from something happening. Right. Somebody did something wrong, so they had to make a rule against it. 
someone didn't document something, so they thought we should probably add something to the FAR to remind people to document this. And and fortunately, it's not a thousand sub bullets long where they decided <laughs> to put everything in the FAR separately. It's in it's in kind of big chunks, which is a good thing. All right, when does this happen? When let's talk time zones. When is this in the acquisition and execution time zones? It's all of them. From the very beginning, you're documenting your market research and and your requirements when you're building them. That that goes in a in a file somewhere. You're filing that away. The whole RFP zone, the source selection zone, we talked about how the source selection files get put into the official contract files somewhere. When you award the contract, the performance zone is the section you talked about where you document actions taken by the contracting officer pertinent to the contract. And then you get to the wrap-up zone. And this is a little preview of the important part. But the wrap-up zone is where contract closeout happens. And there's generally a gap before closeout starts. If everything isn't documented when the performance of the contract ends, then there's a, a gap a time period that passes before anybody picks it up to close it, it's very difficult to close that contract out because all the people that were involved in the actual performance could be gone. One of the reasons we document is to make the wrap-up zone easier to accomplish. The wrap-up zone is where you get your grade on how well you documented the first seven zones. (laughs) The better the documentation in the first seven zones, the easier the wrap-up zone is going to be. Unfortunately, the people that close it out are usually not the people that performed in the earlier phases. So they're just cursing everyone that didn't document it. You rarely have to live your own mistakes unless you've worked in the contract closeout area. And that's actually a really nice job to have for a short time because you learn quickly how important it is to leave clear trails and good files behind. Yeah, the shadow of the past. All right, let's talk about why this is so important. Well, on, on one extreme, if it's not documented, then it didn't happen. That's one option. The other extreme is, what? Oh, I need to document that? Okay, it's in my email somewhere. Let's just search for it and we'll find it. <laughs> right. But then we end up with everything. We'll just dump every email we, we sent over the last five years into the shared drive and we'll just find it. <laughs> That's yeah. not good either. So what we really want is context. Is, is Why does it need to be in the file? Why is this particular item important? And if you don't know why the funding needs to be there, you don't know why the audit trail needs to be there, you don't know why the pre-award survey needs to be there, that's an example. It means you don't have context. That little Christmas list that's in FAR 4.803 is a great example of these are the important things in the contract. I want to dive into your comment on one extreme. If it's not documented, it did not happen. You don't figure these things out until much later. And it could be the most innocuous things that come back to, wow, I really wish I would have documented that. We had a situation recently where the contract said that COTAR or core approval was required prior to any travel. We had traveled in support of a contract. We submitted an invoice for that travel. The invoice was approved and paid. And then years later, during an audit, The government auditors said, show us your documentation that you had prior approval to travel in accordance with the contract. And we didn't have that email. We couldn't find it anywhere. We know that we had authorization to travel because it was paid. The the people working the contract at the time all knew that this was all good. 
but it wasn't explicitly documented that we had approval. Can we take this trip? Yes, approved. And years after the fact, when all those people that were involved are long gone, the company had to pay back money to the government for travel that had already been approved and paid by the government, but the documentation wasn't there. And we had to pay back lots. I won't even get into how much money we had to pay back because we couldn't show approved. That's a brutal example of why why contract management is so important. That's a hard lesson. And one of our clients came to us with that same story of eight years after the action. It was for a piece of equipment. Eight years later, the auditor said, I don't see in the file where you got approval for this. And they said, oh, well, they sent it to us. And they say, well, I need to see it. And they couldn't find it. And I'll just tell you, it was $60,000. It's real money, right? You can't prove the evidence of in eight years. And you're absolutely right. All the people that touched it are gone. So somebody on the government side said, go buy this. Somebody with authority. Your client went and bought it. Government accepted it, paid for it, all that stuff. But that explicit authorization wasn't anywhere in anyone's file. And in the end, they had to pay that money back to the government. Right. And we negotiated a lower amount. But I mean, just think about it. Think about what that means is like, this is money that you've already paid taxes on. <laughs> it's just, you mean, can't it's, even remember doing it. It's yeah. eight, eight years ago. You're like, what? And, and that's a that's a unique. Okay, maybe this is a stretch to say, but that seems like a unique feature of government contract. Is that because it's audited afterwards, and because of all the clauses that are in there, the government has the right to say, "Oh, you owe us this." If you're private, you know, on the private sector, if your customer came back to you and said, "Hey, you owe us forty thousand dollars for something we did eight years ago," you're going to be like, "What?" But in the yeah. government side, yeah, it, it, it happens pretty regularly. So, un, and contract management is how you, I don't want to say protect yourself from, but you, it's it's really, it's managing the, pro, the system properly. And the list of things to manage is right there in FAR 4.803. So that we're already touching on why the government should care, why the government does care about this. Let's get a little more specific on that. The better the contract file, the easier it is to manage, okay? But there's a point of diminishing returns, and that's the art of this. And so the continuity of the contract file is really one of the best places to start. Understanding what happens when someone leaves. What what's what happened in this contract? When I pick it up as the new CO, what decisions were made last year that I'm now going to live with? And, and there's two types of people when you're leaving your old job and going to your new job. One type is trying to fill all the files and get everything organized perfectly so that your successor thinks that you're really organized and we're doing a great job the whole time. The other type says, who cares? This isn't my problem anymore. That Whoever comes behind me, that's their, they're going to have to figure out what the heck happened. Or they may be burning the files on their way out the door. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the third type, trying to cover their tracks. We already talked about documentation when it comes to contract closeout. Think about it as closing out the time zones. There are things to do when you move from the RFP to the source selection, when you move from the source selection to awarding a contract. When contract performance is complete, those are good times to circle back and make sure that the documentation for that time zone is complete. Because when you move on to the next phase, the previous phase is often forgotten. Sometimes it's different people between the the government contracts folks that awarded the contract and the folks that administer the contract. And it's almost always different people that are going to close it out later. So Using the time zones as a, as a way to say, hey, let's stop a second and make sure the documentation is complete is a good way to go about business. 
as the acquisition and execution time zones get more embedded into the psyche of the contracting people, maybe they'll show up in the FAR and <laughs> 4.803 will be broken out by time zone. Oh, that would be awesome. Well, actually, maybe not. That would just be more stuff in the FAR. I'd rather have less <laughs> stuff in the FAR. That's true. We've, we've made it more bloated. That's not good. Contract closeouts, really, it's really impossible if the files aren't there, if they're not complete, right? And so how do you track down a missing document? If the document was never there in the first place, you're never going to find it. You really don't feel the impact of a, a lack of documentation and a lack of filing until something goes wrong later and you're trying to find that. It's really easy to neglect documentation during the execution time zones when you're trying to get a job done, when both sides are trying to get the job done. It's very difficult to pause and say, wait, we need to stop doing things that seem productive and take the time to, to document for the file why something happened. It's not till much, much later that that lack of documentation comes back to bite you. So it's, it's easily understandable why it sometimes gets ignored. Each of these things in the FAR are lessons learned. And one of the big lessons learned for me was documenting now, while, seems, while it seems more painful now, it's a lot easier than going back and saying, what did we do back then? Always. I've raised my hand. The number of things that I said, well, we can document that afterwards. Again, the FAR reference says, if applicable, which is a judgment call, right? So the degree of detail that I put in each one of these is it's a judgment call. And the judgment call may be, okay, we'll fill it in later. But I can tell you time and time again, when I went back and filled it in later, you know, the, the memory isn't there. The person may have moved on. The program manager may have retired, got promoted, whatever. The documentation is going to be harder to, to corral. This is why you can only speed up acquisition so much. If you skip this step and, and, and not spend the time to document things, you're putting landmines in your file. You're putting landmines <laughs> in your contracts. You're putting landmines in your customer's program. Right. They're going to come back and have to spend new money to fix a problem that was created two years ago because we don't have any record of it. And it, again, I, I've caused that problem myself. <laughs> and that's, that's the lesson learned. Uh, I'm sure I have too. All right, let's flip to the industry side. Why does industry care so much about filing documentation? Why should they care? From an industry contracts manager perspective, it's good to understand this is why RFPs, requests for proposals, solicitations, contract awards, and modifications take so long. The government has to do all this file stuff, and it has to be complete before the contracting officer can sign. Sometimes you wonder, why does it take a week after we negotiate for me to actually get the modification from the government contracts office? It's because they have to do all this paperwork and make sure the file is complete before the contracting officer signs it. Because no one ever signs a mod and then completes a file later, right, Kevin? I just explained that I did that a lot. <laughs> yeah, at one, point, at one point when I was a CO, we, we were way far behind and trying to get lots of things complete. I think there was a huge stack of files on the desk where I signed the mod and we were going to go back and do the paperwork afterwards, fill in. I mean, the important stuff was there. The money was there, but all of the rest of the file fodder was not complete. And I think it took us six months, maybe more to dig out. So Brian, if you're listening, uh, how long did it take you to dig out from that mess we created? Yep. I have a couple of those, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's a story for a different day. <laughs> so I kind of flipped back to the government, my government side there from a prime contractor perspective on the industry side. If you're a large business and you have subcontractors or you're buying things, you're buying materials for your contract, then a set of rules, much like we're talking about, applies to you. 
there's this thing called a contractor purchasing system review where the government comes in and reviews your systems to make sure you're following all of the rules that are flowed to you with all of the FAR clauses in your contract with the government. And in some ways, in many ways, maybe in every way, this is much more serious than the government file requirements. Yeah, the, the consequences of a, a quality performance review on the government side are, oh, you should have done this. You're going to get slapped on the hand. The consequences of failing a CPSR is it's, it's almost like failing an audit with the IRS. Once they don't trust you, they don't trust you anymore. Right. And that you, creates work for you. You can lose your authority to have subcontractors or to buy things without explicit government approval or you, you lose your authority to do it at all. And if you're a big contractor and you can't have subs or buy materials, you may not – there's a lot of business you may not be able to compete for or win or execute for the government in the future. So the consequences on the government side, if it was really egregious, if you are buying things and you don't have the proper documentation of funding, there are some things that definitely can get you fired. There are certainly ramifications if there's serious flaws on the government side. It's not like a free pass. Yeah. But, but even the most minor escapes on the industry side can cause you to fail your purchasing system review. And that has serious, serious impacts. Very, very stressful on the industry side when that's coming about. The, the ripples in the pond go a lot farther. <laughs> Before we get too wrapped up in the other 30 or so sub-bullets in the FAR about contract files, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah, we, each one of those is their own podcast episode. For sure. Some of them already are. For me, this proves the importance of documentation and helps you understand the point at which it's too much. Because if you have context on each one of those bullets, then you understand why something's in the contract file. Because knowing why it's in there, it clarifies the difference between having evidence that you had funding, so a certified funds letter, which says I have that this money has been authorized by Congress, it actually is in the coffers. When I award this contract, the contractor is actually going to be able to invoice against it, et cetera. So having that letter that says we have certified funds versus having the entire congressional budget review and the approval of the National Defense Authorization Act that says, here's where the money came from. That's interesting, but not relevant to the contract. So the difference between those two, that gives you context. But having that kind of context for each one of these, I don't know, there's probably a total of, what, 60-some bullets in the entire part of 4.803 will help people understand what needs to be in the contract versus what just might be useful and yet another email to file fodder with. Yeah, in some ways... Documentation is much more difficult now than it was in years past. There's a point back when we started in our government contracts career, kind of kind of where paper was going away and electronic everything was becoming the way of doing business. Important moments in the contract world, approvals, things that needed to be documented, usually had to be documented via a formal letter on paper that was mailed from one to the other. And then it became faxed. And you know, we're not old enough that pre-fax, but <laughs> but <laughs> then it became fax. So it was a little easier to get those letters, but still you had a piece of paper that documented the important stuff. In the age of email and instant messages and texts, there's so much information flowing back and forth. It's really difficult to figure out what's important enough to stop and document and save somewhere where we can find it later. So I think the job is actually much harder now that there's not paper files and formal letters. I remember 
the the effort and care that went into the formal letters that we used to write, Kevin. Now the same thing is done with a simple email that may not may not even seem like it's an authorization, but it says, yeah, okay, do that. And a simple comparison is that the very first time I was a contracting officer, I had to do an authorization in writing because it was a letter. And then fast forward, I don't know, 10 years or so, and I, w- I remember I was riding home in the van pool on my cell phone talking to the contractor, and we're making decisions. And so now, could I actually text him, you know, confirmed? Is that contractually binding? I don't know. What, I don't want to get into a legal discussion of texting is, is legally binding or not. But I mean, in that short amount of time, it went from this was a documented sit down and write a letter and with a pen sign the direction all the way to, okay, we're on a cell phone and I could send an email from my cell phone. And does it have the same authority? So yeah, you're absolutely right that it complicates how much documentation there has to be and where, where is it all? What format, what medium? Yeah, it's... And the FAR <laughs> doesn't even touch those things. Exactly. It there, there's, I wonder if there's going to be a FAR part about cell phones and Facebook messages. Anyway. Uh, social, media, social media as contract direction. Okay, stop now, stop now. I'll talk to you later. All right, see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. Let us know how we can make the Contracting Officer Podcast more valuable to you. Send me a note at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. 